Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills. I'm Dr. Bob Lawrence. It's time to discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Today, we are in for a real treat. I am joined by Dr. Anthony Belfilio, Associate Professor of Music at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Belfilio teaches courses in applied commercial piano, which of course includes jazz studies, commercial keyboard seminars, commercial music analysis, and commercial keyboard pedagogy. He also directs and performs with the Belmont Faculty Jazz Group, an ensemble that he actually co-founded back in 2009. Dr. Belfilio's educational credentials include a Doctor of Musical Arts in Music and Human Learning, Jazz Emphasis, from the University of Texas at Austin. He has a Master of Music in Jazz Performance from the University of Miami and a Master of Music in Piano Pedagogy from Temple University and a Bachelor of Music in Jazz Performance from Temple University. His published books include the dissertation Fundamental Rhythmic Characteristics of Improvised Straight-Ahead Jazz and his latest book, Kenny Kirkland, Solo Transcriptions, The System. Both audio and video formats are available for this podcast episode. Of course, you can listen to the audio version of this episode through any of the popular podcast directories, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and on and on and on, or directly on the Jazz Piano Skills podcast website where you can also watch the video of the show as well, which I strongly recommend. Now, it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, Dr. Anthony Belfilio. Anthony Belfilio, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you so much man, for having me. Oh, man, it is a thrill to welcome you to Jazz Piano Skills. And I know our listeners, the Jazz Piano Skills listeners, are going to... Uh, enjoy this next hour to get to know you and to uh, uh, learn from you, quite honestly. So I am thrilled that you are uh, joining us today. I know you're on faculty there at uh, Belmont University in Nashville, and that's a that's a pretty good music scene there, isn't it, man, Nashville? Yeah, it's great. It's been great. It really picked up in the last um, eight, nine years. Right. How, yeah. How's that? You know, everybody, everybody thinks of Nashville as being a great kind of... Uh, country music hub you know but how's the jazz scene there the jazz scene is is healthy and well um once again i i don't know the exact year but about eight or nine years ago we got our first uh jazz club venue and i'll go ahead and plug them rudy's jazz room uh named after rudy wooten and uh since then i mean obviously with the pandemic things have changed but uh you know Coming up to the pandemic, it's it's been really great. Weekly jam session over there and jazz every night. Um, we also have the Nashville Jazz Workshop, which is a school and also a venue. And um, it's been great. You know, um, when I first got here, there, there wasn't too much going on with jazz. Um, I came in 2006. Right. There, were, there were a few things happening, um, but it's really picked up since then. And you've got a lot of musicians in Nashville they 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 tour with major artists, but right. when they're in town, they're kind of closet jazz players, you know, and they're and they're great. <laughs> That's <you know>? right. <laughs> um, right. So 
when they're not on the road making yeah. money with a country star or or whatever kind of star, <laughs> you know, they're they're home yeah. and they've got their studio and they're playing yeah. jazz and they're recording all kinds of great music and there's tons yeah. of people in Nashville like that. Yeah, you know, they they they, they pay the bills that w- they get the big bucks with those country gigs, man. And then like you say they're 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 closet jazzers. Exactly. Right. But they're great too. I mean, they're world well, you- class. They're world class, right? And you can you can even you know when you listen to the sidemen, uh, it, with with those groups, right? You can tell, right? I mean, you can you can just tell. You listen, yeah. to, okay, that guy can play, man. That guy can play. That guy can play. You know. So um, so anyway, so happy to have you here. How's the uh, at Belmont, man? Any sports teams there at Belmont? You got any football or basketball or basketball? Baseball or so like yeah, um, and I don't follow Belmont sports really all that much. I, I, I'm sorry, but yeah, the the men's <laughs> and women basketball team have done really well. Pretty good, and I believe we have baseball awesome. as well. Um, no football. Um, yeah. Soccer, yeah. so soccer, basketball, baseball. Yeah. And a debate team. <laughs> a debate team? <laughs> well, we had the presidential yeah, just... <laughs> debate twice. So that was a big oh, that's deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, man. Well, let's jump in. I want you to take a, a little time right now to kind of share with the Jazz Piano Skills listeners um, a little bit about your story, your background, your childhood, how you got into music, uh, some of your influential teachers and experiences that you've had throughout your life that have led you to where you are today as a jazz faculty member there at Belmont University in Nashville. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to you right now and let you uh, let you share you with the jazz piano skills community. So take it away. Sure. So you mentioned, you know, starting with my childhood. So I'll, I'll start there if that's OK. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I I come from a a non-musical family. Uh, But that being said, we did have a piano in the house. And we also had a piano in my Nana's house where I spent a lot of time as a little kid. And there was a lot fewer distractions back then. Um, So I used to just mess around at the piano a lot when I was looking for something to do. And I figured out how to improvise. I figured out that if I played an A minor triad in my left hand, that everything on the white keys would sound great over that. So I used to wail over A minor. It's one of my <laughs> earliest uh, musical memories. Can't go uh, wrong. You can't go wrong, can you, man? Play A minor and play all the white notes and you're good to go. That's it. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that I, I used to enjoy doing mm-hmm. when I was, I, I don't know, six, seven, eight. Um, and then I, you know, I did have piano lessons. Um, and I had trumpet lessons as well after I got to fourth grade. And, okay. uh, as soon as I graduated high school, I sold that trumpet because that instrument is a bear. Um, so <laughs> I got rid of that, that sure pretty is. quick. Um, so I could focus <laughs> I on the piano. Uh... And, uh, yeah, so I did have sort of sporadic piano lessons. Um, and I, and I enjoyed my piano lessons, um, but I did a lot of things. I'm assuming, uh, yeah, uh, I'm assuming those were kind of classical, traditional classical uh, piano lessons. Well, from age um, five or six till about 11, it wasn't really classical. It was just um, fundamental stuff from, you know, piano method okay. books with some classical okay. in there. I mean, we had recitals. Sure. Um, right. You know, I, I remember playing 
a piece like Solfeggietto, which is the classical piece right. by Carl Carl right. Holt, Manuel Bach, I think. Um, right. You know, I, and I remember playing the sonatinas um, and things right. like that. So there was right. some classical, but I also used to listen to rock music and, you know, I used to like play songs on the piano by like Bob Dylan, the Beatles, Bruce Springsteen. Um, so there's a lot of stuff nice. that I was kind of doing outside of my piano lessons. Not that I didn't like the piano lessons, but I just gravitated right. towards towards other things like improv and composing right. and rock music and things like that. So uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so I, I kind of, that's kind of a little bit about my upbringing. Um, like I said, um, we had piano lessons, me and my three sisters. I was the only one that stuck with it. Um, and then I went to school for jazz piano at Temple University when I graduated high school and I learned a ton there. I used to check out lots and lots of gigs, a lot of great music back in Philadelphia in those days. Yeah. So what attracted you to Temple? How did you end up going to Temple? To be honest, you know, um, I, I became a good student when I started graduate school. I was not the best student, um, in <laughs> high school or even undergrad. I was the same way. Yeah, I mean, I took music seriously and I applied myself to music, but I wasn't really like a great student and I didn't really check out a lot of colleges. Um, I just kind right. of wanted to stay local and um, yeah. I knew that the, there were people at Temple that could help me learn how to play jazz and that was kind of the right. thought process. Yeah, okay, great. It's a good yeah. school. Yeah. So, so, but, but the nice thing about, you know, being in Philly back in those days is all kinds of great jazz artists came through town and, you know, I've seen everybody from Elvin Jones to Sun Ra to, you know, um, yeah, right. Brantford Marsalis with Kenny Kirkland when he was still alive and right. uh, Marsalis, right. Marcus Roberts and, um, right. Tony Williams, the drummer, you know, um, right. Lots and lots of just great people. Um, well, Jamal, a lot of great jazzers. Oh, yeah. A lot of great jazzers come out of the Philly area. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's what I did. And then eventually, you know, I was living in Philly all of my 20s. And I was, you know, I was playing in a funk band. I was playing in a wedding band. I was doing some jazz gigs. I was in school. I was teaching because I was in graduate school. Um, right. And then I, I left. Um for University of Miami. Um, right. I left in, I think, 2002 right. was when I left Philly for the University of Miami. And um, that was an adjustment, Which is a you know? Yeah, sure. Right. And that's a very good music program. Yeah. And I learned a ton there right. and it was really challenging. I went from being a guy in Philly that everybody knew and I was gigging and, you know, to, 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 to nobody in Miami, you know, I, I went to being to nobody, you know, and, um, didn't have a lot of gigs. The sometimes first it's year. good to be, yeah. Well, sometimes it's good to be nobody, man. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's, I, I totally get it. Right. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that great because it was, it was hard, you know, cause, cause, um, right. it, it was just weird not being surrounded by people who believed in me, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I left, you know, I, I just, I, I just sort of felt like I needed a, a kick, you know, I, I needed a change. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just who, like who was, who was on, who was on faculty when you went, when you went to Miami, who was teaching on faculty? Uh, Vince Maggio was the jazz piano instructor and I caught him in his last two years. He retired. 
okay. the year that I finished okay. my degree there. Right. Um, so he was doing piano, and there were there's all kinds of great faculty members there at the time. Ron Miller, um, right. great composition teacher, um, great composer. Uh, Witz Witz Seidner was the director at the time. Don Kaufman was teaching bass. Um, oh yeah, right. Uh, and all of all of all of the guys that I think I just mentioned, with the exception of maybe Don, I think are retired now. Um, in fact, I know right. Witt and Ron are retired. Um, so yeah, so it was a great atmosphere. They used to have really, really fine guest artists come through and, and work with the students. Um, so that was awesome. Like Mike Stern was great. Um, right. Who's, uh, James Moody. Um, oh yeah. The, the great drummer, um, John Riley. Um, right. right. All kinds of great, uh, guests would come through um, Miami and, and sometimes they would work with the ensembles that I was playing in and that sort of thing. So right. that, was, that was fun. Right. Well, I know one thing that it didn't take you long to get used to was winter in Miami compared to winter in Philadelphia. Come on. Yeah. I remember being at the pool on Thanksgiving <laughs> and like calling my family and being like, you guys are freezing your butts off right now. And I'm here, I'm sunbathing by the pool here, you know, <laughs> oh, underneath a palm tree. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a beautiful place. And we used to go to, I was already married at the time. So I was, I was there with my wife and, you know, we used to go to the beach oh. and, and, and all that. And yeah, it was, it was great to, um, I, I love the, the sun and the, warm weather and tropical. Uh, I love all that stuff. So that, yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful campus too, isn't it? It is. Yeah. All, yeah. And all of the natural yeah. areas around there are really, really unique. And, you know, driving out on the right. keys is a great experience. Um, but, but, but the, Hey, but then you left, you left Miami though. And then get, you, then you came to God's country, man. Then you came to, I did Longhorn country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are not watching on video, Dr. Bob just gave us a, a hook'em horns. Sign. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I got a great offer to go to um, Austin, Texas, and 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 finish wow. up my education there. And um, you know, you had mentioned um, earlier maybe some of the teachers that influenced me, and um, I'd have to say that Jeff Helmer down in Austin was the best teacher I've ever probably ever had um oh wow no offense to my other teachers because because they were great too but uh it, it was just um he was just very generous very honest and just uh yeah I, I i think i was at a maturity level where i was you know ready to soak it in and and so that one that's that awesome. great so I, I really appreciate um jeff helmer and he's also a great player if you haven't heard him play right um, i have so yeah and then i you know i was um Applying for jobs for practice, because for those of you who are young professionals, it's, it's a good thing to regularly do interviews, do, you know, apply for right. jobs, get, get yourself out there, work on your resume, your CV. So I was right. doing that sort of thing, really not because I was expecting to get a job right away, but more just to get my feet wet with that sort of thing and um, applied for a couple of jobs, maybe two before I applied for the Belmont job and, and I was fortunate enough to get invited to campus at Belmont and, you know, uh, yeah, very grateful that here I am. And I, that this is, I just completed my 15th year here at, at Belmont. Wow. 
Well, apparently, if you've been there 15 years, you enjoy it. And um, so tell, talk to us a little bit about the program there at Belmont. Believe it or not, here at the, you know, I teach here at the Dallas School of Music, and we have a lot of high school kids uh, studying music here. And um, a lot of them are always, every year, we have students that are always interested in Belmont University uh, to go and study music. So talk to us a little bit about the program there and your role specifically uh, in the, in the uh, School of Music there at Belmont. Sure, I'm happy to talk about Belmont. So um, the first thing that we should know about Belmont is they do not actually offer a jazz degree at the moment, although fingers crossed, okay. maybe down the road that's going to happen. Um, but they, we have a very large commercial music program, and, and jazz is, is a big part of that program. Uh, we also have some other programs. Um, you know, We have a whole classical program and various degrees that go along with that. But we do have a, a commercial music um, degree program, and um, we have over 800 music students total, undergrad and grad, last I checked. Um, okay. So it's, it's, it's a pretty large population. We've got a lot of uh, wonderful singers in the commercial music program, which is really great for the pianists because they can play for their voice lessons, play for their recitals, play for right. their gigs, you know. And eventually when they do become the star and they go on the road, you know, hopefully our, our, our alum, our former students can, can, can get out on the road with them. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's kind of what the program is like. Um, we have a very large population of vocal majors, um, pretty, pretty healthy on guitar as well. Um, okay. and, and yeah, um, we, we offer some slightly, um, not really un unconventional things, but the things that are maybe nowadays are a little bit more common, but used to be rare. Things like, you know, mandolin and banjo and a bluegrass right, ensemble right. and a commercial strings wow. program with like fiddling and, and that sort of thing. Um, so so this, the, right. the strings program is, a, is another kind of dimension of, of, of Belmont, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah. Pretty small so piano right now. Met... Oh, okay. So you mentioned the... You mentioned the commercial, you know, you say commercial music, right? So what does that, in, that's intriguing, right? That's, that's intriguing for, for me. I'm going like, Hey man, maybe I'm, I'll go back to school and get a commercial uh, music degree. So what does that ultimately, what does that, uh, what does that training students to be able to do upon graduation? Well, that's a good question. And, um, there's a lot we could say about the term commercial music, um, but maybe we right. don't need to go too deep into that into that rabbit hole. But um, I believe Belmont was the first uh, university to offer a degree in commercial music back in the late right. uh, late 1970s, or maybe it was early 1980s. So they right. were, the, as far as I know, they were the first one um, to offer that. Um, if you look around the country at different commercial music degrees presently. Um, they're they're a little different, you know, depending on what what school that you're looking at. Um, the first thing, if 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 you if you just think about the term commercial music literally, um, it sounds like a music business degree, right? Because right, commercial means commerce, so music as commerce. Um, and and some people think it is a music business degree, and and there might be some other programs around the country that offer a commercial music degree that is more of a business degree. Um, right. But at Belmont, it's it's a Bachelor of Music or a Master's of Music, um, and it's it's 
it's similar to a traditional um, music program in the sense that you you know you get classical and commercial lessons on your instrument um, okay. or voice, and you take theory and you take oral skills and music history and all the sort of staples of a of a music education. Um, but then we also have these emphasis areas in the commercial music program that are a little more specialized. For example, songwriting emphasis, music business emphasis, performance emphasis, comp and arranging, and music technology, mm. I believe, are our five emphasis emphases. Okay. Um, so in that area, there's a little bit more sort of uh, forward thinking or cutting edge thinking, or you could say more of a practical business side of things. How are you going to earn money type of thinking, right? right? right. So, um, so I think the appeal of the commercial music program is that you know we're we're training you to be professionals and to to, to actually be able to make a living in in, in music, um, so you're not just isolated in a conservatory environment. Which conservatories are right. wonderful. I have nothing against them, but it's a little. It, it's it's the focus is more on having a broader portfolio of skills, um, right. and you right. know, just kind of like hopefully being able to work. And I will say that the the alum alumni. Um, from our program, a lot of them are, are out there working and doing really, really good things. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Right. So you, I, I noticed online you are, you started or co-founder of the Belmont Jazz Faculty Group. Is that, is that That's correct? That's right. It's, it's the Belmont Faculty Jazz Group is the name of the ensemble. Okay. And basically we just, okay. um, we just play for our students um, and the, pub, the oh, public fantastic. is invited as, as well. Um, oh, that's yeah, awesome. We, just, we put on, before the pandemic, we were doing two concerts per year um, for our students. And like I said, the public is invited. And we've had some pretty great guest artists over the year and some really, over the years, and some really great shows. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit of an under yep. the radar kind of thing that I do at, at Belmont. Um, but I've been doing it for right. a long time. And I have a great group of colleagues. Um, and we're actually going to start scheduling some rehearsals up here really soon because we didn't play last year because of the pandemic. Yeah, um, right, right. So, yeah, it's a great group. Um, and we, we also draw in other faculty members that are not part of the core group, per se. You know, so we'll feature other faculty members from time to time as well. Right. But we didn't, we didn't do much this past year, um, but we're looking forward to, to playing some yeah. more music again real soon. Wow, and I think everybody's—I think everybody's excited to uh, begin hearing live music again very soon too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. Right. So, okay, a couple. Of, I got a couple questions for you. Before, you know, we're going to jump into some jazz education here uh, as well. But before we do that, I noticed uh, uh, you have a couple publications, and I want—I want you to talk about each of these a little bit. Right. Number one, I think it was your dissertation that you did at uh, UT. It's, it's called The Fundamental Rhythmic Characteristics of Improvised Straight-Ahead Jazz. Is that, did I have the title of that dissertation correct? You, you do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That, that's good. See, my, my doctoral training has prepared me well, man. That's right. So, 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 okay, so talk to me about your dissertation, The Fundamental Rhythmic Characteristics of Improvised Straight-Ahead Jazz. I think that's fascinating. I want to hear more about it and what you what you discovered in your dissertation. Well, thank you for asking. It's been such a long time since I've talked about it, you know. Um, I <laughs> yeah, we, all, we all put it away. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I definitely um, 
<laughs> I feel like it's a, it was a, a great contribution to, to, to jazz education, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of like a not-too-dry way of talking about it because <laughs> it is a little dry and tedious. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, oh. it includes um, some transcriptions with with an analysis okay. of based focused on rhythm most of the time when we look okay. at transcriptions we talk a lot about the the chords and the modes that go over the chords and that sort of thing it, do, it doesn't really go there right. it's more about the rhythm the rhythmic content and, and and things like feel and there are also some micro timing uh studies in there where you, you go into the in this case they were pro tools files and you measure the attack transient which is the beginning of the note um, and right. you analyze the micro timing at like the millisecond level. So there's some of that in there. Um, but it's a big old 300 page book. And if you go online and you just type in like my name and dissertation or, or the title of the dissertation, I believe it pops right up. The whole PDF of it just pops right up. If you Google it, at least last time I checked, yeah, it did. Right. So it should be ready, readily available. Um, the, the, the second chapter, which is the review of literature, I think is a really interesting and really good chapter if you're interested in rhythm and right. both in terms of micro timing studies, but also just in broader terms, like the importance of jazz rhythm and what is swing and these kind of things. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's that's worth a read. Um, the rest of it is, yeah. is definitely tedious and technical, you know, um, but <laughs> You know, it, it's it's kind of hard to, to to do a book on rhythm. You know, and there's everybody always wow. says rhythm is the yeah, most three, important. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and not only to do a book, but to, but to do a 300 page book. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of that was the transcriptions. They took up a lot of pages. Right. Um, right. But yeah, it's it's 300 uh, pages of pretty dry stuff. You know. Um, but. Um, <laughs> so, I, so, so, so jump to the conclusions. What's the takeaway? Well, um, man, I should have done some preparation. <laughs> I'll try to remember. Um, yeah, right. I, I'd be the same way with my dissertation. So, I, I mean, some of the, the conclusions are kind of obvious, but it's like a lot of things. It's, it's kind of obvious, but until you really look into it and, and study it, it right. it's not, it, right. you, you can't just take it for granted until you, you really go in and study it. So, you know, one of the things right. that I found is that like in the micro timing stuff is that the accompanying instruments tend to be more exact or precise with their timing, whereas the soloist tends to be looser or freer. With oh, the timing. Right. So like if you analyze right. the same pianist when he or she is comping, you might find that the, the rhythms are pretty precise, but then when it's time to take a solo, they, they, for expressive reasons, they, they take more liberties with the time and that sort of thing. So now that's obviously a generalization that I found in the recordings that I studied. So it, it, whether or not that can translate to other recordings is, you know, certainly. Well, a that's, you, you know, that's a fascinating, uh, that's a fascinating observation there because really the soloist can become free with, with, with uh, become, can become looser with time with the more stable the time is that's behind them. Right. right. So, right. right. So, you know, I've, I've always said a great drummer actually sets you free, Yeah. you know? And, and um, and so I, you know, that observation that, like you said, it makes sense when I sit down and think about it, that makes sense that, 
whoever's not soloing the, the, the accompaniment instrumentation is kind of nailing down time so that soloist can actually experience great freedom and a, a looseness with their with their playing. Right. And I also looked at, you know, the, the relationship between the bass and the ride cymbal, which I can talk about if you want, or we can skip that. And um, what else? And I, yeah, I just, we don't I, care about we don't we don't. We don't care about bass and ride cymbals. Oh, I, oh, I care a ton. It's it, it's just a little dry, but yeah. So I wasn't the first person to study that, um, but I, my conclusions were kind of the same as as the other studies that I looked at, which were that a, a lot of people think that the bass plays ahead of the ride cymbal. Like a lot of people will say that the bass player oh, right. plays ahead of the ride cymbal, or more on top of the beat than the ride cymbal. Um, right. But right. most studies have found the opposite to be true, that the ride cymbal is a little bit ahead of the beat at the micro level. But the, the thing that you have to realize is that, and this is the other interesting thing about the the whole dissertation, is that the way the sound develops over time is very different. So like when you pluck a bass string, it takes a long time for that thing to resonate and sound like a note to your ears, you know, whereas when you ping on the ride cymbal, it's immediate. You know, and if you if you just look at the yeah. waveforms on the screen, like if you're looking at a Pro Tools thing, you can see the difference. You can see that the ride symbol has the sharp attack, and the bass takes a long time to develop. So right. it might feel like the right. bass player is pushing all the time, um, and 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 try and playing a little bit ahead of the ride symbol. It might sort of feel like that, but if you keep keep in mind how long it takes those bass notes to develop right. and proceed, yeah. it, it, that's probably why the the perception is that the bass player has right. to kind of drive right. the bus and kind of be on yeah. top of the beat. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great observation. You know, another, another book that I saw that you had put out there is uh, Kenny Kirkland's solo transcriptions, right? The SIP, the, the system. Yeah. So what, what is that? What is that all about? Kenny Kirkland's solo transcriptions. It. Yeah. I'm glad you asked because I really hope people will check this book out. If you just go to kennykirkland.com. Yes. Um, you'll find it and you have to like click on the page and then it gives you the ordering information. But yeah, it was published by the system, which is Gene Perla's company. Are you familiar with Gene? I, I am not. Okay. He's a, he's a bass player. He's been around for many, many years. He, he's located in Pennsylvania at the moment. Um, okay. but he, he played with Kenny, um, back okay. in the nineties in a group called Stone Alliance, which was Gene's okay. and, um, a, a percussionist um, band, um, and I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the percussionist name. That's really, really bad. Um, Don Elias. Oh yes, yeah, sure, right. Don Elias is a percussionist name. Yeah, so so Gene and and Don had a fusion band for a while, and they, and Kenny was in the band, and and like Gene also lives right down the street from uh, Jeff Tane Watts, who's the drummer on a lot of okay, the Kenny sure. Kirkland right. things that I that I right. transcribed. Um, so anyway, I, I think it's, there's eight solos in there that I transcribed. They're all really, really accurate. And I did a whole concert where I had to play the solos with the recording. And like the, the scores were like streaming on the screen while I was playing, which was kind of an interesting oh, wow. concept. But um, wow. so, I, you know, I learned all the solos note for note and um, and, and had to play them. And um, Gene, I was really lucky to hook up with Gene and, and Gene you know, published the book for me. And it's also available through Jamie Abersalt as one of the d distributors. Oh, so if you okay, go to his great. website, what is his website called again? Um, 
I think it's J A Jazz, right? No, okay, it no. used to be called it, it used to be called J A Jazz, but I I think it's called jazzbooks.com now. Yeah, something with books in it, I think. Um Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I, anyway, if you just, if you just do, Google Jamie Abersaw, I'm yeah. sure you would find right. it. So, so he's one of the distributors. Um but but Gene prints the books. They're they're not available in PDF. You actually have to buy the okay. book. And that was just because I don't want all the solos to, to end up on the internet. Um Correct. Yeah. So um but yeah, so Kenny was just just such a a great um, musical soul, you know. Um, and um, obviously, he passed away. Uh, I believe it was right. in nineteen ninety eight, tragically at a young age. And um, you know that there's not that much stuff about his contributions out there, really. Right. Um, right. So that's why I did the book, and also because when I really kind of first started listening to jazz, he was one of the people that I started listening to, kind of in the early nineties. Right. Um, right, right, his, right. His stuff, his stuff with and his his stuff with Branford Marsalis. I was that was some of the earlier jazz right, that I actually right. got really into when I was young. So, um, so yeah, I'm really really proud of that book. And um, it, there's a short little bio about Kenny in there as well, um, and, and and the transcriptions, and and that's it. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, now uh, a couple another thing I want you to talk about. I saw on the internet. Because uh, I, you know, I was stalking I you, dude. I was out there, you know, checking you out. It, yeah, and uh, w- one of the things I saw was a video of you playing an Art Tatum transcription. Right? Yeah, I, th- I can't remember the tune. Lullaby, Which, what, Tiger, Lullaby right? What, what, of the I can't remember. Lullaby yeah. of the Leaves, right? So, so I remember when I when I saw that. First of all, I hadn't even listened to it yet, right? But I saw that you were doing an art. You were playing Art Tatum. I said, "Man, anybody that's anyone that's attempting to play Art Tatum, that that that's a serious cat right there." So, uh, talk to me about that video. Did you do a series of those transcriptions, Art Tatum transcriptions, or no? Talk a little bit about that. Unfortunately, I only did the one. I, I can't remember what year that was. I mean, it's got to be eight or nine years ago. Um, it was, it was basically like, um, so, you know, I'm really into transcribing as I'm sure you are. And I think, you know, most, most jazz educators and jazz musicians, you know, transcribe and listen a lot. And, you know, I was always super intimidated by Art Tatum, still am. Um, and it was was just, who's not, yeah, right. right. It was just one of those things where is it possible that I could do this, you know? And, and it was a summer project. It took me several months to do it. Um, but I, I listened to a bunch of his stuff and I, I picked what I considered to be the easiest, most likely thing that I could pull off, you know? Um, and, uh, it was great. You know, I just, I transcribed the whole thing and I learned how to play it. And anytime you do that, you learn a ton. And, um, the other thing I did was my hands are not that large. Um, I can reach some tenths, but barely, but obviously Art Tatum could reach tenths very easily. Um, so I, I also did an adapted version of the transcription for people with a little smaller hands as well. Um, I saw that. Yeah, and, and, and they both sound pretty good, you know, and the one that I played is the adapted one because I couldn't reach all of the stuff in the in what he played. Um, right. So it was just one of those things I did to challenge myself, and um, yeah, it's... I get very, very little traffic on YouTube. Maybe this podcast will help, <laughs> but, but that, that's the one video. <laughs> well, that's the one video. Right. Everybody should videos. go out and check. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, everybody should check it out. It's, it's fantastic. 
yeah, it's it, it's a great performance, man. It's a great recording. You did awesome. It was tremendous. Yeah, it was recorded right behind me here on one of these pianos, the one in the back right there. Oh, there you uh, go. I that's see. That's where I yeah. recorded it. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, let's talk. Let's talk a little jazz piano. Let's talk a little jazz education. So this is kind of, you know, I call it a rapid fire round where I'm going to throw out some jazz piano skills. And uh, I'm going to let you, I'm just going to throw out a skill and I'm going to let you run with it and, and kind of speak a little bit about how you approach the study and practice of that skill. And if you have any do's and don'ts that you would offer up to the jazz piano skills listeners, uh, provide those as well. So uh, I'm, I'm going to start with, with uh, the skill that I think everybody talks about, maybe the most, the most, the most popular skill to talk about in jazz, and that is the skill of being able to play scales and arpeggios. So talk a little bit about your approach to scales and arpeggios, practicing them, and how you work with students there at the uh, university to help them get the most out of their scale and arpeggio practice. Okay. Um, well, first off, and I'm, I don't mean to be uh, a problem with, with this answer, but I, I think it's always better to play music rather than play exercises. So just, just wanted to get that out there. Um, so yeah. Um, but exercises can be helpful. Um, but, but I always think, you know, if, if you're, if you have limited time, if you only have 30 minutes, you're better off playing music than playing exercises, you know? Um, but anyway, um, to me, like the, the thing about scales and arpeggios on the piano is that they're very visual. Um, right. so right. the way that it works for me, I don't spend a lot of time practicing scales and arpeggios. Um, although I guess over the years I have, I do occasionally go back and do it. Um, but to me, it, it's, it's, it's being able to see the seven notes in the scale, which are the same as the seven notes in the chord, right? Like if you, if you think about a scale, like one, Correct. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven with whatever variations, and you think about a chord, one, three, five, seven, nine, 11, 13, those are the same thing, right? So exactly right. Yeah. So to me, to me, to me, to me, it, visual element of the piano being able to see whether it's a simple like a simple scale like c major which is all white keys or if, if it's something that's on the surface more complex like an altered dominant scale which is actually not more complex because it's still seven notes right you know so um whatever the scale is like just, right. just kind of being able to visualize <laughs> it on the on the keyboard i think is really important um and just in terms of the the, the white key and the black key configurations and then, you know, when you're playing, you can see all, when you, when, when you, when you when you have a chord, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a tune and there's a chord, C major seven sharp 11 or whatever the chord is, you can see that chord all over the keyboard through the whole, entire 88 key range. So when you're improvising, it's, it's kind of like the, all of those notes are available to you. Right. And obviously you can go outside right. of the mode and you can use chromaticism and, and, and things like that as well. Um, but to me, like connecting the seven note mo scale or mode with the seven note chord built up to the 13th and understanding how those two things are the same is really important and helpful. Um, arpeggios are difficult on the piano, you know, like they're a lot, I think they're a lot more difficult than scales. Um, so arpeggios are good if you're just having trouble with the technique of just getting, you know, playing the 
getting your fingers to play the correct notes accurately. Like seventh chord arpeggios are really difficult for me. Right. Um, right. So arpeggios are really good right. for just kind of like teaching your hand where to go. Um, and back to what I was saying about the scales and the arpeggios, um, the scales and the chords, there's this, this technique that psychologists call chunking, which sounds kind of funny, but it, all it means is that when you're looking at something that has a lot of information in it, like a scale has seven notes, um, you, you can chunk all of those notes together in your brain very, very quickly. So you can immediately name all of those notes. It's kind of like spelling a word, right? Like it, when, once you've used right. a word long enough, right. you don't need to think about the individual letters in the word. It just it just crystallizes as a thing. So to me, like a scale right. or a mode, it's a sound right. and it's a, a group of notes. And when all of that stuff chunks together in your head where it's a no-brainer and you can access it instantly, that's kind of what you need as a pianist because you're playing the chords all the time, right? So you need to know what the notes are in all, all of the chords. But you don't have time right. to sit there and, you know, generate the notes one by one. You you have they have to chunk all together as one right. thing. So I think practicing scales is, is good for that, you know. Um, and same thing with arpeggios and chord voicings, you know. And then connecting the chord voicing with the scale, right? And and, and seeing how it all it's all the same thing. Yeah, that's that's very important, and you're absolutely right. You know, that's one of the things I stress to students here all the time, right, is seeing harmony and melody as being one and the same, right? The harmonic structures, you know, you talk about a sound, a musical sound going from the root to the 13th, you know, the seven notes. That's yeah. the entire sound, right, from the root to the 13th. And, and, then, and then being able to maybe chunk things together within that sound, right? So maybe practice the scale, instead of practicing the scale from the root to the seventh, maybe practice the scale from the third to the ninth or from the fifth to the eleventh or from the seventh to the thirteenth, right? So now the ears are engaged at a whole different level as opposed to just going from root to root, root to root. You know, I, I tell students all the time that the ears, the ears are just hearing octaves at yeah. that point, you know? I like to have different entry points. I like to have a different entry point and different destination point and chunk, you know, uh, uh, fragments. I call them little frag yeah. you know, sound fragments, right? Where you take the entire sound and then, and then you break that sound, you practice that sound in fragments uh, using scale motion or using arpeggio motion. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's the, the visualization of the piano is an asset for us as, as pianists. That that is an asset. You know, sometimes I I often wonder how how a saxophonist how do they create that same kind of imagery that we have uh, that the instrument that the piano gives us. You know, so it's a it's a big plus in our favor. So we should we should right. take advantage of it. And and that's interesting what you say about not always starting on the root because you know one of the things that you probably observed this as a teacher too when you when you when you tell a student, okay, you can play this scale over this chord and this scale over this chord and this scale, scale over this chord, and then, then they start the scale on the root all the time, you know, um, because we're, we're just so used to, right. like, playing, starting the scale on the root. And also, we're so used to always doing ascending first and then descending, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that way, right? Like, you could start in the middle of the scale and you could start with descending and then ascending and change direction a few times and, and, and what happens. Right. But, yeah. Right. 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 Well, you know, and, and I and, and I try to stress to students, you know, when you improvise, you know, when you're improvising using scale motion or using arpeggio motion, you should see the looks I get when I ask, you know, I'll ask a student, I'll play the note C and I and then I play the note D. 
And I say, is that scale motion? And, and, and they look at me like I'm asking a trick question, right? Because, again, we think of a scale. They want to think of a scale from going from C to right. C. That's the scale, C to C. And, and I'm going like, no, C to D is scale motion. So if, 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 if I ask you to improvise over this chord using scale motion and you only use the notes C and D, congratulations. You've just used scale motion when improvising sure. over that chord, right? And just like an arpeggio, C to E flat is arpeggio motion. It doesn't mean you have to play the entire arpeggio or the entire sure. scale. So you're, you're, it's funny that you bring up, bring up the ascending D. Like you said, we always want to think, ascending first and not, we, we get caught we get yeah. caught in these little traps right very yeah easy. and i noticed that like my left hand descending scales were not as good as like my left hand ascending scales or my right hand ascending right. and descending scale like i noticed that like years ago you know i was like okay well maybe if i'm gonna practice scales maybe i should <laughs> right. start with the left hand descending you know <laughs> like like get that get that going a little bit better you know <laughs> right right all right well good all right what about Let's talk voicings. Voicings for a pianist is kind of, uh, you know, when when you ta start talking voicings to the young jazz pianist, you know, you can kind of see the sweat form on their heads because it's a it's a confusing. It can be a very confusing area. And and if we're not careful, voicings, I always say that voicings are like it's like fishing line. It can get tangled up very, very quickly if you don't have a. A, a way of approaching it conceptually, orally, and physically. So talk a little bit about how you figured out voicings for, for you and how you go about helping students get a handle on this concept of voicing. Okay. As far as how I figured out voicings, um, it probably goes back to my first jazz piano lessons in college. Um, now, I did have... I, okay. I never actually had a proper jazz piano lesson, I guess, before college. Um, although I, I had some teachers that were telling me to check out Bill Evans and Pat Metheny and stuff. So, you know, but I didn't really like do a ton right. of jazz piano. Um, so I think probably my teacher probably showed me a lot of the voicings and ways to practice voicings when I first started. And I don't remember that terribly, terribly well. Um, the other place where, you know, I learned voicings are from transcribing, especially like when you're transcribing a, a, a jazz pianist and you transcribe that right. left hand, that's like really right. valuable information. And one of my pet peeves is when somebody transcribes a jazz pianist and they transcribe only the right hand, you know, it's like, hello, we have two hands, you know, right. and, and they put, the there's this great, um, <laughs> there's this great jazz pianist, um, Sullivan Fortner. I don't know if you're familiar with him is he's, he's a younger guy, but he was one of our yes. jazz piano guests here at Belmont. And the way he described it is he said, when you transcribe jazz piano, you know, the right hand has the style and the, the flair and everything, but the left hand has the information, you know? So like when you start to transcribe those left hand voicings, when you're transcribing jazz pianists, it really, really helps you specifically to know what they're, what tones they're choosing to use and, and what tones they're thinking about and that sort of thing. Um, right. So, right. yeah. So, um, right. and I'm sure there's some books that, you know, I, I don't use any particular book for voicings. I mean, I'm familiar with the um, John Mahegan book, which is where we got the AB form voicings out of that book. Um, yeah. yeah, right. Wow. You're going, you're, you're going back when you mentioned, when you mentioned John Mahegan, not a lot of people 
know John Mahegan, especially yeah. younger cats, not familiar with John Mahegan, but but he was like honestly, I think he was like the pioneer of of jazz education, one of the very first, if not the first, to try to put into writing what jazz yeah, musicians. I should check do. him out more than 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 that. Now that you said that, I should check him out more. But yeah, so you know, a lot of times jazz pianists talk about the A B voicings, which is just a designation for ways to play these voicings. Right. Um, and I believe the, that that's right from his right. book. I mean, it's from Bill Evans and other pianists as well. But I, I think as far as putting in a book, I think right. he was the first right. one to put right. it in, into a book. Um, and I think he was the guy that came right. up with the A and the B right. terminology. Um, yeah. So, terminology. but yeah, I mean, I, as, as far as like, you know, you, you asked me about scales and arpeggios and I, and I kind of said that music is always better than exercises. Um, I, I do think voicing exercises is really important at, at the beginning stages for, for jazz pianists. And it, if you haven't learned how to chunk the voicings in your head, like, it really needs to be instantaneous, you know. So if I'm playing like, you know, E G A D from the bottom up, that's my C six nine chord. Like I don't have time to like sit there and think about those four notes. It just needs to be. It's a grip under my hand, right? And it's a sound, and I and, and you should be able to do it up and down the keyboard and, and <laughs> invert it and everything. Um, right. So yeah, it comes back to that like chunking thing again, where where. You, you, you use the, the voicing right. as a, a unit in your right. head. It's not just a disparate collection of notes, but it actually has a, a feeling. It has a color, a sound that you like. And, and when you play it, you know what it's going to sound like. And um, you, your hand knows it. You're, you have it in your motor memory of, in your fingers. And you, when you hear right. it, you can recognize it because you've listened to it so many times. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you, I used to have a teacher. I used to have a teacher in lessons. And, and and this is when I was a young kid, man. I was only like 14, 15 years old. And he'd be talking to me, right? And when he's talking to me and teaching me, he would be holding his hand up and he'd be he'd be talking about a chord and he's holding yeah. his hand up, right? And I used to think I I remember as a kid going like, "What what the heck is he what what the heck is he doing like sign line? but he was yeah. holding up the shapes. He he was hold, he was holding That's the shapes. That's me when up I teach theory like if, if if a student asks me about a scale and I have to like <laughs> tell them the notes on the scale, like I'm I'm holding my hand up, my fingers are going, and I'm, I'm visualizing the piano. That's, that's the only way I can do it, you know. Like I'm not sitting there thinking about the musical staff or the key signature or the, the intervals. I'm just going. I'm going right to the right. fingers and the and the keyboard, you know. Um, so yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing with, uh, you know, it's the same thing with modes, right? Students get wrapped around modes where I always try to explain them that modes are really a really fancy every good boy does fine. In other words, you know, we, we, teach, student, we teach the beginning student every good boy does fine as a way to learn the musical staff. But, but we want them to forget that yeah. as quickly as possible, right? And we just want them to see EGBD, right? We just want them to see the musical staff. I said modes are a way to explain us, explain to us how to yeah. get to a sound, right? So you know when I when I, right. So instead of thinking of the C mixolydian mode, just it's the C dominant scale. You, you'll no longer think of it as the F major scale starting on C. You just get to the point to where that's just the C dominant yeah. scale, right? So the 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 mode is the mode is an every good boy that every boy every good boy that's fine that gets us to the gets us to the goal line to where we yeah, need to so get to. however you're practicing your exercises um they should feel effortless at some point right like 
that that's that's how you know that you, just, you didn't just right. waste your time. I mean, if you're sitting there practicing exercises and, and it correct, it, it feels difficult and it's not, it doesn't feel effortless and it's not coming together, crystallizing and coming together quickly in your in your brain. Then you know you're not really making much progress right. there. But it, it, when it's, as soon as it starts to feel effortless and like a no-brainer, um, then then you're starting to make some progress. Right. Right, because you, we want we want music, especially in playing jazz. Right, it's a it's a instinctual response to the musical stimuli that we're taking in. It's a instinctual response, muscle memory, oral memory, and uh, but to get to that point, to get to that point, there is an analytical process to get to that point where we have to actually spend time thinking about what it is that we're doing, and you know, quite oftentimes a student will say to me. You know, when I'm explaining the analytical side, uh, you know, I get the question. I always get the question. Well, do you do you actually think that way when you play? And and, and I'm always going like, no, I don't think that way when I play. I think that way right. when I practice. When when I pl- when I play, it's time to play and rely on my my oral memory, my muscle memory, and my conceptual understanding to instinctually respond to the stimulus. Yeah, oh, would I you, absolutely would you agree. agree with that? And, yeah, it's like. There's the analytical versus the intuitive or instinctual, as you just said. Um, right. right. And I, I think, you know, one of the things about teaching a lot is that you get good at the analytical stuff because you have to explain it, right? So, um, yeah, so that's that, Correct. That's one of the Correct. reasons why I, I appreciate – there's a lot of reasons why I appreciate that, that I've had a career in teaching. Um, but, yeah, just, just – Sometimes, you know, you learn something or you do something and you don't have to explain it and it, it just always stays at the intuitive level. But then when you have to explain it to somebody, it's, it, you know, and you have to break it down, you, you can go to the analytical side of it. But but both are important, you know. But yeah, but when I, when I play, I, I don't want to be hindered by a bunch of thinking, right? Like, that's the, like, <laughs> when I can hear myself thinking, like, that's not a good take, you know, like let's trash this take and let's do another take. Right. Um, so, so yeah. 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 You, you don't want, yeah. You don't want to hear, you don't want to hear you think right. and we don't want right. to hear you. Think, and you don't want right? to hear me playing exercises either. Right. R- so, right. so like the exercises and the thinking is that's right. like the stuff you need to take care of in the woodshed, get it taken care of so that when it's time to play music, you, all of that stuff is effortless and it's all second nature and maybe not all of it, but you know, maybe 90% of it or whatever the percentage is you can play intuitively. Right. And then, you know, maybe there's right. a, a few tunes on the set where, you know, you're not as comfortable yet and you really have to kind of concentrate or, or whatever. And, and, and that's okay. You know? Um, but for the right. most part, you want it to just come out really instinctively because then it's going to sound better and feel better and all that. Right. Correct. So, okay, here's a really easy question for you. Super, super easy that you can probably answer in 60 seconds or less. How do you go about helping, teaching students, helping students learn how to practice creativity, learn how to practice improvisation? I was joking right, about right, the 60 right. seconds because I know that's a, that's a big topic right there. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. but how do you, you know, right. We, you, the concept of practicing creativity is a, for a lot of people, that's kind of con that's, that's a con yeah. contradiction, right? It's a contradiction. How do you practice creativity? How, what, but, but the reality of right. it is we do. So, 
How it's a you... really good question, obviously, and I, I don't know that I have a, a great answer for it. But I'll start with saying that, like, one of the things that's nice about being at Belmont is that you're surrounded with creative people. So you're constantly you're, right. you're constantly observing other people doing these creative things, whether it's the students or the faculty. So, so that's really important. It's just being in an environment where where other people are going to inspire you to be creative because they're being creative. And, and of course, that gets into the whole like thing of with the competitiveness and and that, which is a whole other discussion. But if you if you can find yourself in an environment where people are creative, maybe there's a little bit of competition, but it's not like cutthroat, you know, hardcore competition because that doesn't usually help anybody. But it's it's more just being inspired by your peers and your colleagues and what they're doing around and, you know, what they're listening to, what they're playing, what they're composing. So I think being in an environment where there's a lot of creativity is really important. And I think get, being around people that are non-musical artists, like visual artists and, you know, dancers, actors and things like that also helps as well, just being being in a creative environment. Um, but, yeah, so practicing right. creativity right. um Wow, that's an interesting term. Like uh, practicing improvisation is something I've thought about a lot more, but practicing creativity is a little bit more general and broad. Um, I will say that it's a lot more fun to, you know, if I have three hours in the middle of the day to kill, um, it's a lot more fun to practice to do something creative than it is to practice exercises and and practice, um, you know, doing things by <laughs> rote. You know, or just doing right? things right. And and part right. of practicing is the repetition. Right. I mean, you you can't get away from it, especially if you play piano, right? Like you you, you got to just practice things like multiple times right. and over and over again until it's effortless. Um, but right. yeah, but if I have some time to do something creative, you know, um, try to compose something, try to arrange something, do some free improv, improvise over some tunes. Um, all of that stuff can be lots of fun. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of free improvisation. Um, you know, just just sitting at the piano and just seeing what happens, maybe recording it and listening to it afterwards and getting together with right. other people and, and practicing freely. Right. Um, real, real quick story. Mark Mark right. Johnson, the great bass player, he, he came through Miami when I was there and he gave a clinic. Right. And he talked about how he practiced. And basically, you know, he didn't practice any, like, bass stuff, you know? Like, he didn't, like, practice, like, walking bass lines or like, bow, you know, bowing long tones or, or scales and arpeggios or like different finger right. positions on the right. neck of the bass. Like he wouldn't practice. Right. He, he didn't talk about any of that stuff. He said, when I practice, I just try to get into a creative space right away. And he demonstrated this in front of, you know, a right. huge group of students and, and faculty members, how he practices. And it was just basically just free improvisation, or you might want to call it spontaneous composition. Like he just wanted to get to that creative place right away when he practices now maybe when right. he's younger maybe right. it was different but you know um so i, I think maybe right. balancing right. the the creativity with the more uh, mundane sort of um technical sort of rigorous kind of practicing like maybe balancing those two things and favoring the creative a little bit so you know maybe uh 20 percent right. or, or maybe 30 percent you know of the exercise type of stuff, technical kind of stuff. And then like 70% of the musical creative stuff is some, somewhere in there is probably a good, a good right. balance, but, but how to do it is that's a tough right. one. Um, yeah. It is tough. It is, it is tough. And I think one of the, I think one of the challenges that students have and not just students, 
for, for us as well, right? I think one of the challenges is that we always start with too yeah. much information. So what, what I always try, what, what I try to get students to do is I, 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 I tell them that, you know, creativity is a product of limitations, yeah, right? That, so, so what we should, right? So what we should do is, is actually limit the options that we have available to us in order to tap into our creativity and, 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 and in order to improvise. So, you know, the old thing of like, hey, I had a teacher that used to give me two notes, two or notes. Note. And, and I would have. Yeah. Or one note. That's right. Just one note and create, improvise, improvise with yeah. that note. Right. And, and he was funny, man, because, because he always used to say, hey, if you can't improvise with two notes, adding a third one won't make right. it easier. Or adding a fourth one doesn't, right? <laughs> right? And so what I think what what uh, stifles creativity and improvisation with students, especially with all students and even ourselves because we're students of music, is that we just start with too much yeah, information. Absolutely. absolutely. Period. And that's the classic teacher mistake, like an inexperienced teacher. Like, you know, you, you go into the lesson and the teacher gives, yes. gives you all this information. Like, no, <laughs> that's not a good way to teach. Uh, it's better to... To, to start with a little bit of information and, and let the student be creative and actually use the information. But, but, yeah. When I first started teaching, you know, I made that mistake a few times, just, you know, you're looking at a tune yeah, right? and like, yeah. Yeah. Because what, right. Well, you know, what we do is you're absolutely spot on because what we do is we, we go, Oh, we don't want to bore this student. So we give yeah. them a lot of information. And in, in, and in reality, what we end up is doing something far worse. We end up yeah. frustrating them as opposed to boring. Yeah, I mean, them, you know, we could, so, you could bring in a tune yeah. from the real book to a lesson. And I, I could tell you like every single chord voicing, every single mode that goes with every single chord and, you know, give you all that information in five or 10 minutes and then ask you to play. But what's going to happen is your brain is just going to shut down and, you won't be able to play because you're thinking too hard about right. all the stuff that I just tried to teach. Um, so yeah, it, right. it, especially with improvisation, right. like just starting with less, you know, just starting with a few musical elements and then adding like one at a time, like you want to add like 10 elements, Correct. you know, on, on take two, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, what's really funny. The most mature jazz musicians yeah. use less. <laughs> You know, you know, I, that's one of the that's one of the characteristics of maturity, you know, as, as a player, yeah. as, a, as a performer, you know. So. All right. Here's another topic I want you to address, because I think students, uh, uh, they wrestle with this as well. And that is articulation, articulation. You know, everybody wants to sound like a jazz pianist, like a jazz musician. Right. And, and, it, and it comes down to articulation. How do we articulate? So how do you address that with students there at Belmont? How do you address that with your private students? How do you help a student get a handle on, get a grip on articulation? Well, it's one of my favorite concepts. Um, and before I answer the question directly, I'll just tell you a quick story, which is when I started studying jazz in my first semester of college, um, my teacher was all into Bill Evans and, you know, he said kind of blue was one of the secrets of the universe. And of course I got the kind of, <laughs> I got the kind of blue record and I listened to it and, and I love Bill Evans and nothing against Bill Evans, but it was the Winton Kelly track on there was the one that, that was the one that changed my life, you know, because I, I had already heard, I had already heard Bill Evans play before and 
you know. Right, right. But I had never heard Wynton Kelly, and I didn't know it at the time, but what made that sound so unique is the articulation that he, that he uses. Right? To me, it was just like, right, I didn't right. know the piano could sound like that, you know, because I, <laughs> right. I just didn't know you could, you could get that much personality out of the piano. And the way that he does that is by varying his articulation mm-hmm. and his, his great swing feel, his combination of long and short notes, barely any use of the pedal. Um, and, and so the, the, the big enemy of articulation right, right. is the pedal, right? <laughs> because when you have the pedal down, you, no you don't hear the, the release of the notes, right? So, um, and, and, and the, the right. attack is different too, because when you attack the note, you're still hearing the wash from the previous notes. So, so basically the, the two things that you have as a pianist at your disposal, the attack and the release of the note, because you can't do anything to the note after you've attacked it, right? Like you can't crescendo or do vibrato on the note right, right. because it's a percussion instrument so all right, you have is right. the attack and the decay right. so if you have the pedal down all the time you've just eliminated right. all of the options and articulations because everything's going to sound like you know a, a big echo chamber so the first thing I, I need to do with students is get them right. off the pedal and i and you know i preach to them all the time like play everything right. without pedal everything i don't care if it's a ballad or a romantic classical piece Play right. everything without pedal, see what your hands can do, and then add the pedal. And at that point, the pedal actually adds something to the music, right? It's, it's not right. a default switch, you know? Like, when I sit down at the piano, the pedal is down. Yeah. You know? like, right. like, it shouldn't be that. Um, so, so, yeah, so that, that's, that's how it works for me. Like, if you practice without pedal, and then you can, you can see what you, connect, what you can connect, what you can't connect. You can focus on the attacks and the releases of the notes. Um, and then, and then develop your sound. Well, it, go ahead. Right, and 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 without the pedal, you you without the pedal, you actually end up learning how to control the instrument as opposed to the yeah, instrument. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Um, and 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 I love the pedal. It's a beautiful sound, but it, it it's not like I said. It's not a default switch. And and Correct. I'll give you another just real quick story. Brian Bromberg, great bass player, was given a clinic here at Belmont. And he was practicing without his amp. He was practicing electric bass without his amp. And he was talking about how students always go to the amp for their sound. You know, they're always looking for just to get the tone just right on that amp, you know. (laughs) And he's saying, no, the sound comes from your fingers. It comes from your articulation and how you attack the notes. So he, 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 we were in a, you know, medium-sized recital hall. And he's up there playing without an amp. And everyone's being real quiet trying to listen. But, But his point was that... The, your sound, your voice, your personality, it starts at the beginning of the attack of the note. It's not the stuff that goes after right. that, that really gives your sound. It's not like the amp right. or the pedal. Um, yeah, so so yeah, just getting, yeah, just focusing on how you're attacking and releasing the notes to get the sound that you want. Is, yeah, that's really important. Right. And the other thing, you know, I think which is really important, you know, talk about the use of technology today. I, I try, you know, wow, you know, how a student today can take their phone that they have in their back pocket, they can turn on record and and record themselves practicing or playing and, and just little snippets, right? So they can start hearing hearing themselves away from the instrument, right? Because you know as an artist that the way you hear at the instrument and the way you hear away from the instrument, quite often those two things don't sure. match up perfectly, right? So so being able to 
practice. If you want to really get an idea of how you sound, how you're articulating, man, pull that cell phone out and hit the record button for five minutes and then listen yeah, back to absolutely. it later. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you listen back to something, it's, it gives you a little bit more of an objective approach, to, to not, I guess. Um, but, yeah. but the good thing is if, yeah. if you record yourself a lot and, and become comfortable with that, and it's painful sometimes, but if you, it, it's like, it's like recording oh, myself speaking or being on video can be painful sometimes too. But the more you do it, the more comfortable you, right. you become with how you actually sound. And um, that's pretty important because if you're going right. to subject other people to it, then you should, you should be the most the person that's most familiar with it. Right. So yeah, definitely recording yourself is definitely Correct. great. So who are right now, uh, who are, who are your favorite pianists? Who are your favorite jazz pianists? Most influential in your yeah, life? Yeah, so this is always the hardest question for me. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a tough one, right? Because there's so and, many. And there's, there's so many, many and, right? I, and I listen to different pianists for different things, and I listen to non-pianists, and I listen to, you know, music outside of jazz as well. So, right. yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really hard question. Um, um but I should be more prepared for the question than I actually am. I guess if we kind of, if we kind of go chronologically, you know, to the earlier, if we start with the earlier jazz pianists, um, and kind of work up to the more modern ones, that that might be a way to approach it. So as far as like, I'm thinking about pianists that I've transcribed and kind of studied. I think Thelonious Monk and Wynton Kelly, right. um, Red Garland. Um, any of Miles Davis's pianists or yeah. rhythm section players are I'm a huge fan of. Um, so right. yeah, the whole, um, you know, Red Garland, Wynton Kelly, Bill Evans, uh, I think Hank Jones was in there for a minute with Miles, right. you know, um, yeah. but I, I've definitely, right. definitely really into Red Garland and Wynton Kelly for sure. And, and Thelonious Monk, just like all of us, you know, it's just such a unique, uh, musical personality. Um, right. so I love those guys. And then, you know, Coming right out of those guys, you've got guys like um, Wynton Kelly and McCoy Tyner. Sorry, not Wynton Kelly. Um, McCoy Tyner and Herbie Hancock. You know, um, so I love those guys right. as well. Um, right. And then you know, as far as um, I did the book on Kenny Kirkland, and like I said, you know, Kenny was somebody that I was listening to when I was first getting into jazz, and it really overwhelmed me. Um, and I, I should have, I wish I had good advice and I, I wish I had been transcribing him back then when I first started listening to him, but I, I waited 20 years or whatever it was to, to actually study him. Um, but yeah, but I love, you know, I love everything that Branford Marsalis has ever done and Kenny is on a lot of that stuff. I love everything that Kenny Garrett has ever done and Kenny Kirkland right. is on some of that stuff as well. So right. I love all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I also, you know, I like like the fusion stuff from the seventies, like Chick and Herbie and Miles and all that stuff. Right. Um, you know, there's some guys that are around now that are like really intriguing. Like Jason Moran is really really great. Um, Jeffrey Keezer is a guy that I really like. Um, he's a little bit under the radar. He lives out in San Diego, he's I think. Tremendous. Just great. Great player. Yeah, tremendous. Really creative guy. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see. Oh, Michelle Camilo is another guy that, um, I really, really appreciate his stuff. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so yeah, there's just so many, um, there's so many, Jerry Allen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. To listen right. To. It's, it's so fun. It's, 
Right. It's so funny because, <clears throat> you know, when I drive to work, you know, I always give this example. You know, I might, I drive, I might drive to work this morning and he'll hear Bill Evans play, right? And I say to myself, oh, man, that's exactly how jazz piano should be played. That's, that's perfect. That's perfection, right? Then, then I go home in the evening and I'll have somebody, I'll be listening to somebody, Hank Jones comes on and I go, oh. Well, that's perfect right there. That's yeah. the way jazz piano should be played, right? And then tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, it, it, I'm hearing Teddy Wilson, and I go, that nah, th- th- that's the way the piano should be played. You know, so, so it's so hard because it, all these guys, when you listen to them, you just go, you just marvel in how wonderful, how wonderful yeah. they sound. So it is a tough it's one. a tough question because they're they're all yeah. so influential. Yeah. So, well, listen, this has been a thrill this has been a joy to have you on jazz piano skills and introduce you to the jazz piano skills listeners uh and uh, i hope you'll come back and visit again so we can continue this conversation because it's been incredibly enlightening not just for the listeners of jazz piano skills uh, but for myself as well and uh and the other thing i'd want to say is thank you for all that you're doing there at belmont university and working with the students all your your commitment to education and jazz music and jazz education and your commitment to uh, help train the next set of young lions that are going to continue to promote and uh, uh, share this art form with people around the world so thank you from for me and for all the jazz piano skills oh it's been a huge pleasure i really appreciate you reaching out to me um it was it was totally unexpected and it was just a great surprise. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we, I, we could go for three more hours easily, you know, like there's, it's, it's just been, it's been a lot of fun speaking with you and questions are great. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to checking out the jazz piano skills website and all of your stuff, you know, in, in more detail as well. Um, so thank you very, very much for looking me up and having me Wonderful. on and, yeah, let's let's just keep in touch. Well, I look, I look. We definitely will. I, I look forward to continuing our friendship. And uh, Anthony, we'll have you back on soon. And I encourage everybody out there listening to please check out Anthony online. Uh, check out uh, all the activities at Belmont University that's going on in the fabulous programs that they're offering for music students. And uh, and uh, do a little investigation, and I'm sure you're going to love it. You'll enjoy listening to Anthony play, and there's a lot of recordings out there of him online. If you can as well, spell so. my last name, you can find so, okay, me. Okay, Anthony, thank you so much. I said, if you can spell my last name, you could find me. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. So it's B E L, yeah. right? F I G. You got it. L I O works in three Belfilia. parts like that. No, thanks again, Bobby. Really appreciate All right. it. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony. You. All right, have a great day. My pleasure. All right now, bye-bye. Well, I hope you have found this Jazz Panel Skills podcast episode with special guest Dr. Anthony Belfilio to be insightful and, of course, beneficial. One of my mentors and teachers, Al Franzen, used to say to me after every lesson, never forget, the greatest thing about music is the people you meet through it. And the privilege of meeting and spending time with Anthony simply confirms Al's sentiment 100%. Don't forget, if you are a Jazz Panel Skills member, I will see you online Thursday evening at the Jazz Panel Skills Masterclass, 8 p.m. Central Time, to discuss this podcast episode featuring Dr. Anthony Belfilio in greater detail and to answer any questions that you may have 
about the study of jazz in general. As always, you can reach me by phone, 972-380-8050, extension 211, by email, Dr. Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence at jazzpianoskills.com, or by SpeakPipe, found throughout the Jazz Piano Skills website. Well, there's my cue. That's it for now. And until next week, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the pearls of wisdom shared by Dr. Anthony Belfilio. And most of all, have fun as you discover, learn, and play jazz piano.